SCP-2922 Notes from the Under I've talked about the afterlife quite a bit throughout this series, from the endless, hellish existence of SCP-2718 to the really trippy realm of death in the End of Death canon. The idea of the afterlife has been written about for thousands of years by people from every walk of life, so it makes sense that the SCP universe would have numerous different approaches to it. Death and the question of an afterlife is an interesting concept, and that brings us to another interesting SCP, 2922. When given the opportunity to learn about what comes after death, the Foundation is of course going to leap at the chance, with all the tactlessness and coldness they can muster. SCP-2922 is a method of communication from a human mind to a telephone that is not greatly understood by the Foundation. When someone is implanted with this method, they can call a specific phone number at any time. It was originally developed by a corporation as a novelty smartphone app, under the assumption that the natural electricity of the brain was capable of initiating these phone calls somehow. Of course, what's actually happening is some form of telepathy, and the app was never released. Exactly how a person gets implanted with the SCP is never specified, and although the assumption is that it's some sort of computer chip, it is odd that they would have been using brain chips for a novelty app. Regardless, although it started as an app, the designated number to receive calls can be a landline instead of a cellular phone. Currently, that designated phone number for 2922 to work is assigned to a landline phone controlled by the Foundation, and a member of something referred to as Project Corbinic must be on hand 24 hours a day to answer any incoming calls. We'll be hearing a lot more about Project Corbinic as we go on. As expected, the Foundation had to test out this telepathic phone business, but instead of slapping a brain chip onto a D-Class, a Foundation researcher volunteered for the project, Dr. Janet Spiegel. As of right now, Janet is located in an extra-dimensional realm. Despite what you might be thinking, 2922 didn't actually send her there, as she was killed in a car accident after being implanted. Two hours later, the Foundation received a phone call on that designated phone, from Janet. The Foundation doctor that picked up the phone was understandably confused, especially after Janet verified her identity, and tells her that she had just died in a crash. Surprisingly, Janet understands that she's dead immediately, and says that she's naked in the middle of a desert. She also states that she's truly dead, and that she's never leaving this place, but she's going to take some time to adjust. The Foundation attempts to trace the call to no avail. Since the Foundation has someone who is definitely dead in our world and yet still conscious in some other existence, the O5 Council establishes Project Corbinic to use Janet in order to understand the world she's inhabiting. In Arthurian legend, Corbinic is the mystical home of the Holy Grail, and the birthplace of Sir Galahad. The Council presumably thinks they've found the Holy Grail of anomalies, true information about the afterlife. The interviews with Janet continue. She says that the sky there is very dark, with black clouds and no stars, although there are three moons. She says that it doesn't feel like nighttime, though, 
and ponders if there even is a daytime and nighttime here, since she hasn't seen a sun at all. There's no wind, no sounds, no animals, and no other people. Janet can still breathe, though, as she has a body identical to her body here on Earth, but she doesn't feel any pain, even hunger. She asks the doctor if she can speak to her husband, still alive here, and the doctor says he'll bring it up with the council. Janet plans on walking in a straight line in one direction until she finds something other than sand. She eventually calls back five days later, stating that she's seen some freaky stuff, and that she's not tired or hungry yet at all. She was getting to the base of some mountains when she found another life form, a primate walking on two legs, larger than the mountains. She guesses it was about 2,000 meters high, which would make the creature over a mile in height. The creature had matted black fur all over, with two glowing white eyes like searchlights. She doesn't think it had a mouth, and apparently out of curiosity, the creature stepped on her. Presumably, she was utterly smashed into the ground, but she says that it hurt like hell for a couple minutes, meaning she can feel pain here, but her skin and bones put themselves back together. The primate wandered off into the desert, and Janet spotted a camp nearby with hundreds of naked people huddled up together. Some of them are buried waist up in the ground, and Janet believes that they buried themselves due to looking for a place to relax while here. She then tells the doctor that she's provided the foundation with information they'd never imagine of having, and all she wants in return is to talk to her husband. The O5 Council, however, stated that the only people she can talk to are Project Corbinic personnel, as this is extremely sensitive information. Janet asked them to hire her husband onto the project, but since he's a civilian with an art history degree, it would never happen. She swears and hangs up. When she briefly calls back again later, she says that a wagon came to the human camp, driven by a guy in a white robe and a skeletal horse, implying that she's now integrated herself within the camp. The wagon driver told the camp that they are to be taken to the Elysian Fields. The Elysian Fields, or Elysium, is an afterlife concept among the ancient Greeks, where those chosen by the gods for their heroic lives would rest after death in paradise. When the doctor remarks that Janet doesn't sound too happy about this, she simply says, yeah, sure, and hangs up. This would be the last time that the Foundation would hear from Janet for seven months, despite attempts on their part to try and contact her themselves and track down her location. Finally, though, a recorded voicemail was received from her, who explains that she's been following their efforts to track her, and that she's now won the favor of some sort of seventh entity, expunged from the record by the Foundation. Janet says that everything she said up to this point was true, but after the wagon driver came, the truth became much more complicated. She is willing to tell the Foundation exactly what happens when you die, but all she wants to do is talk to her husband. She threatens that if the Foundation's fear and hatred of civilians trumps their thirst for knowledge, she'll know, and then she'll never tell. She signs off by stating that she is the advisor to another expunged entity, meaning that Janet has been quite successful in this afterlife so far. 
It seems pretty simple, right? Let the man talk to his deceased wife, pump him full of some amnestics, and find out all you want to know about the afterlife. Sadly, it was not to be, and instead the Foundation sent an MTF to raid the home of Janet's husband after detecting an anomalous voicemail being sent there. Upon arrival, he threw his phone at a wall in an attempt to destroy it, and was shot dead by the MTF. The anomalous voicemail was found on the phone, sent somehow by Janet. She told her husband that he's not crazy, and he's really receiving a voicemail from his deceased wife. It seems the entity that she's been advising in the afterlife can wield some powerful magic, and since the two of them are on friendly terms, the entity helps Janet out, allowing her to send this voicemail. She tells her husband that the MTF is on their way now, they don't take prisoners, and that he is about to die. She explains that there is an afterlife, in fact, there are millions of afterlives, and she's in one of the preferable ones. It seems that once you die, any one of the million of afterlives can await you depending on your actions in that purgatorial state that Janet was in. She says that she can't say much about the journey after death, but that he's been preparing for it his whole life without realizing, and he should look back to his most important memories. She then provides some tips on making it to her. These tips are impressively cryptic, and personally remind me of the journey into the dreamlands concocted by H.P. Lovecraft. The tips she gives include following the moon on the left, making it to the Valley of the Striders, and asking the three-faced tree where the spy went, and to not do anything to make anyone angry, including letting a strider kill you if it wants to. This won't really harm you, and Janet speculates that it's their way of saying hello. Just as she's about to provide the most important tip, though, she realizes the MTF is at his door, and tells him to smash the phone. She's got a powerful entity on her side, and he'll do what he can to help, because he believes in her husband too. True to her word, then, her husband did die, and presumably made it to join her. That would likely be the end of the story if her husband had successfully destroyed the phone and the voicemail, as Janet would probably never contact the Foundation again. Unfortunately, the Foundation learned what we just did, and proceeded to initiate something called Operation Galahad. Continuing the Arthurian theme, Galahad, born in Corbinic, would be the knight who would finally set out to claim the Holy Grail successfully. Let's see what the Foundation has planned. As part of Operation Galahad, the Foundation forms a new MTF, Omega-16, Grail Knights. The members of the Grail Knights were hand-selected for their hand-to-hand combat abilities, skills of judgment, stamina, and more. They have dubbed the afterlife Corbinic, and the MTF is being sent in to navigate, map, and comprehend the location. None of the members of the MTF are actually aware that it's the afterlife as they have not been given any of the 2922 documentation. For them, it's simply a very important extra-dimensional location that is home to an enemy of the Foundation that needs to be captured. This is their primary goal, as she is stated to be a traitor to the Foundation who is actively working against them. This is, of course, a tricky goal, as Janet has powerful entities on her side, and the home field advantage, as it were. 
MTF agents are sent in with no earthly gear whatsoever, forcing them to find or create their own equipment and tools. Moving on, the documentation for Operation Galahad says that agents will be sent to Korbanek through an experimental procedure in which they are placed into medically induced comas and use SCP-2922 to communicate. Sounds a little fishy for the Foundation, but okay. So far, they've managed to detail only a couple different regions, and they acknowledge that the total space of Korbanek is unknown. They tell the MTF that humans inside of Korbanek believe it to be some form of afterlife, but whether or not it is is unimportant. Gravity, air, and temperature are all similar to Earth, with generally unchanging weather and three moons. Upon arrival in Korbanek, an individual will awaken in a random part of the Great Desert, with no clothes or possessions. On one edge of the desert is a mountain range called the Valley of the Striders found by following the leftmost moon for as long as possible. In the valley are the Striders, a dangerous native species, a nomadic society of humans, and an entity known as the Three-Faced Tree. In the center of the valley is Bogle Mountain, believed to be over 30 kilometers in height, which would make it a few times taller than Mount Everest. At the top of the mountain, although it hasn't been directly observed, is rumored to be a castle where the Witch Queen of Bogle Mountain resides. Winding through the valley is the River Tok, a river of organic grayish sludge, possibly a gigantic amoeba of some form. Following the path of this river leads to a large cubic structure called the Marble Hall. The hall is several kilometers wide, and inside are thousands of humans in a perpetual orgy. Equally praised and feared by local human settlements, it is ruled by an entity known as the Elephant King, who actively seeks for humans to live in its hall for unknown reasons. Following the river talk to its source finds the Chitin Sea, which is not really a sea at all. It is a massive biomass with a thin top layer of chitin, a polymer that makes up the exoskeletons of insects, and deep layers of unidentified organs and liquefied tissue. It seems that walking across the Chitin Sea is possible, but five agents have been lost so far due to the Chitin cracking, and so it's advised to avoid it. In the desert is an entity called the Coldbound Hare, which resembles an arctic hare four times the size of normal, but composed entirely of snow. Once a year, for a period of 24 hours, this hare will travel to a nearby location called the Croaking Cave. The cave is of unknown size, maintains a constant 0 degrees Celsius, and averages 3 inches of snow across the interior. Inside are a number of mechanical constructs, known as the Frogs That Spit Winter, each about a meter tall. Upon opening their mouths, a gaseous substance is released capable of freezing any substance to negative 20 degrees Celsius, accompanied by a highly compressed sound bite of a bullfrog croak. Also living in the cave are around 100 humans, who have settled into a single village tended by an entity called the Flame Bearer, a marsupial organism resembling a kangaroo. Its pouch contains an indeterminable amount of fire, that it can take out and hold in its forepaws, 
and it can apparently run up to 90 kilometers an hour. Next to the Croaking Cave are the Greenleaf Woods, populated mostly by evergreens, but was also the home of a unique elderly human called Father, who we'll get back to soon. We're also given information on a bunch of other residents of Corbinic, including Janet, who is marked as hostile, and her husband, whose location is unknown but likely separate from Janet. The Foundation recommends finding him and using him as a hostage. The Striders are actually the gigantic primates that Janet first located, and MTF agents have found even larger ones, at least 3,000 meters in height. They are peaceful when unprovoked, often attacking humans gently, but if provoked, will make vocalizations that cause human flesh to petrify, or cause humans to teleport to an unknown area, or negate their healing factor. Due to this, striders are ignored if possible, but they will occasionally grab humans to feed the Witch Queen of Bogle Mountain. The Witch Queen is also marked as hostile, and is the oldest of the striders. She possesses reality-bending abilities, a harsh temperament, and a disdain for humans, to the point of merely speaking negatively of her while within the valley or desert will cause your flesh to petrify. If an agent is captured and fed to the Witch Queen, they are not to resist, as after two months of digestion, they will be defecated and their bodies will heal, although there will likely be deep psychological trauma. The alternative is considered to be worse, however. The entity that is associating with Janet is known only as the Impenetrable, and is noted as a hostile reality bender resembling a massive spider. It is said to be the seventh godlike being of a council of eight, but little else is known about it. Other transdimensional experiments done by the Foundation have stumbled across this entity, resulting in 52 deaths. Let's get to some transcripts of the MTF's activities in Corbinic. While exploring the River Tok, a group of humans piled onto one of the female agents and dragged her into the Marble Hall, tearing her apart with their hands. Although the other agents are hesitant to go into the Marble Hall, the director insists they go retrieve her. The director then receives a call from the captured agent, who is drunk from the fountains of alcohol inside the hall, and who says that although it was really scary at first, this place is awesome. Residents of the hall continue to torture, eat, and fornicate with one another over and over, and she has no intention of leaving. We don't hear anything more about her, so presumably she was left there. While poking through the river Tok, one agent gets grabbed by a strider and taken away, and the others find an elderly male half buried in the sludge. They drag him to the shore and find that his body is covered in the sludge inside and out. Although he seems to be in great pain, the sludge is preventing him from screaming. After clearing him out, the man explains that he can't remember his name, can't remember who he was before he got here, and doesn't even think that he's dead. He does say, however, that underneath the Kitan Sea is an entire city, made of caverns, coral, bones, and people. Living down there are things that would make an anglerfish scream, and there's something called the Fisher King, 
another character in Arthurian legend charged with guarding the Holy Grail, who floats down there waiting for people so that it can devour them and never release them. It's apparently the god of the Chitin Sea, and everything down there brings it food. He also says that once you see it, you forget that you exist, and everything you were is replaced with looming dread, soon to be a pile of scattered memories and rotten meat. As a nice cherry on top, it resembles a giant eel. If that doesn't sound deeply familiar, check out my video on SCP-3000. While investigating the Croaking Cave, one agent gets attacked by a group of the mechanical frogs and can no longer move. While talking to the director, the agent gets approached by the flame bearer, and the next time the director hears from the agent, he's back outside of the cave. He says that the kangaroo had a flaming head, but he felt protected while near it. He heard it speak inside of his head, telling him that the fire will carry you home. The next thing he knew, he was back on his feet outside of the cave. In the Greenleaf Woods, which are unbelievably thick with trees, agents found a clearing where an elderly man was resting on top of a stone structure resembling a bed. The man was in pain and called out to the agents by name, telling them to come closer. The agents later agreed that it wasn't a compulsory effect, and they just felt wrong about leaving him, so they approached. With tears in his eyes, the old man told them about his kids and how proud he was of them. He had invited them all to the clearing today, but none of them had come, as they must have been busy. He began coughing a great amount, and although the team's medic tried to help him, the man died, telling the group thank you. Since this was the first instance they found of someone dying, it was worth noting, and one of the agents asks how long this mission will take as he wants to get back so he can talk with his kid. The director says they have no projected end date until they capture Janet. The final piece of Operation Galahad is a corrupted file, in which Janet has somehow hacked in to communicate. She says that the Foundation has been telling more lies, and that the experimental procedure is actually murder, as many of us likely guessed. Since the Foundation is actually killing these agents in order to send them in, there is no extraction procedure. Janet leaves off by saying to forget what's coming and to enjoy what's left. So that's that. Corbinick has plenty of room to be expanded on as a rather fantastical location and unique concept of an afterlife, so we'll see what, if anything, authors do with it. The central problem with SCP-2922, though, is how the Foundation dealt with Janet and her husband. The Foundation is generally seen as cold and uncompassionate, holding the virtues of secrecy and global protection above all else, which would indeed dictate their actions in this case. However, it's unlikely they would be so short-sighted as to anger their only connection to an afterlife for such a petty reason. At the time, perhaps they figured that Janet would be lost without them, and would continue to talk to them either way, but things didn't work out that way. Many more aspects of Corbinic will be examined and explained when I discuss the Three Moons Initiative, the major human organization within Corbinic. 
SCP-2922 is one of many interpretations of the afterlife within the SCP universe, and while it certainly isn't the most horrific, it is definitely imaginative.